All right. Well, it's good to see everybody here this morning. So, uh, for those of you who have been with us for the past few weeks, you know we've been going through a series on the Ten Commandments. We've gone through eight of them already, and uh, we're coming up to number nine. So next week we'll be in. Get uh, Pastor Luke back, and you won't have to be me. So, um, so we come. You know, one thing that I've noticed, uh, hopefully you've noticed the same thing as we've been going through the series, is practically every one of the Ten Commandments, we can look at them at first glance and we can say, well, I'm, I'm pretty good with this one. This one doesn't really apply to me. And uh, then when we look deeper into it, we find out that it actually does apply to us. Uh, we find out that there's deeper meanings behind it than you see it face value. And I think we're going to see uh, the same thing this morning. In fact, uh, one, I, I you know, have to admit, this is probably one of the worst ones for me personally. As I've been going through this lesson, it's actually been quite uh, convicting for me. So we're going to look at uh, commandment number nine, which is Exodus 2016. Put it up on the board. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. So when I think about and the thing that comes to my mind is a courtroom. That's, that's the thing that I picture. I picture uh, someone is on trial, and uh, somebody else comes up, is called to testify against that person, and they lie in, in order to get them convicted. They lie about the person in order to get them in trouble. That's, that's what I picture when I read that. But is that really what this is about? That, that may be a part of it, but does that really sum up what this commandment is about? Were, then it probably wouldn't affect most of us, because let's say probably very few of us, if any of us at all, have ever been uh, summoned to testify against someone in a court of law. And if you have been summoned to testify someone in a court of law, chances are you probably didn't go up, because not only is not good, and hopefully we don't want to go there. Perjury. You are under oath, and you go up in the court, and you lie kill yourself. This is about, because it probably wouldn't affect most of us. I think there's more to it than that. Um, now, when I first started uh, preparing for this sermon, I listened to bits and pieces, where other people on with this. And most of them took the route of doing a, a sermon on lying. Well, lying is part of it, but I, I it covers the whole thing either, because this is a specific kind of lie, bearing false witness against your neighbor. If something is red, and I know it's red, but I tell you that it's blue, that's a lie but it's not bearing false witness against your neighbor. So what does that mean to bear false witness against your neighbor? A couple of months ago, I took a trip to Atlanta on business. I was at a convention for about a week or so, and every day I walked from my hotel to the convention center. That walk took me through a park, Centennial Olympic Park. Now, some of you may recognize that name because back in 1996, the Olympics were being held in Atlanta. Centennial Olympic Park was the center of Olympic Village. So that's where everything was going on. And there weren't games going on. That's where everybody was hanging out. That's where all the parties were. There were concerts. That was 
kind of the center of where all of the tourists were going when they weren't going to view different Olympic events. And so that was kind of the place to be. Now, on July 27th of 1996, uh, a guy by the name of uh, Richard Jewell, got his name there for a second, Richard Jewell, a security guard, and he was walking around the park as a concert was going on, and he noticed that there was a bag that didn't seem right. It seemed out of place, some kind of a backpack or duffel bag or something like that, and it was sitting underneath one of the lighting towers for the concert. So he notified the police, and the police came and helped the police to kind of evacuate the area and move away from this bag. Well, while they were doing that, a bomb inside the bag exploded. Two people were killed. 111 people were injured. Now, who knows how many people would have been killed had they not been evacuating that area. So at first, Richard Jewell was hailed as a hero for three days for three days. And then after three days, a news report came out that the FBI was looking at Richard Jewell as a uh, person of interest, as a suspect, just as a person of interest. So all of the media, uh, they all kind of jumped on this bandwagon and started digging. They started probing. They started doing reports, roundtable discussions. And they dug up well, he had tried to become a police officer, but he wasn't able to make it. And so, so now he was just a security guard, and he was frustrated that he was a security guard. And they started contemplating out loud, well, maybe he planted the bomb so that he could go in and rescue people first and then be hailed as a hero because, you know, he had delusions of grandeur. And this is what was being reported on the news. So his house is surrounded by TV. Crews, houses surrounded by angry people. Two of the victims filed lawsuits against him. Jay Leno even got on the on the bandwagon and referred to him as the Unidufus. Turned out, he really was a hero. The guy who planted the bomb was a guy by the name of Eric Rudolph. But for Richard Jewell, it was too late. Right? The damage had been done. He spent the next 11 years of his life in courtrooms trying to get justice for what had been done to him. And then after 11 years, he died of natural causes. This guy his life trying to find justice. Now, he died of natural causes, but I have to wonder if the anxiety and the shame and the frustration and the stress of that time may be contributed to those natural causes. When someone's car, you replace it. But when someone steals your reputation, justice is a lot harder to come by. Bearing false witness against your neighbor, my definition for this in simple terms would be saying untrue things about someone else in order to gain something for yourself. Saying something untrue about someone else in order to gain something for yourself. So in the case of Richard Jewell, these media outlets, they were out to gain viewers. There's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. That's what they do. That's their business. That's how they pay their bills. That's how they put food on the table. But what they did was they took a little rumor, they took a little innuendo, 
and they expanded upon that, and they took it to places where it shouldn't have gone. And the next thing you know, this guy's life was ruined, even though he was a hero. Who knows how many lives he saved? So what about us? Do we do that? Do we do that? Do we bear false witness to our neighbors? Do we ever take uh, a little innuendo or a little rumor and then go to someone else and spread that rumor, spread that innuendo, maybe even maybe uh, build it up a little bit more, add a little bit to the story to make it a little more interesting? Do we ever talk about people behind their backs? Do we annoy us that maybe we talk about? Do we have workers that bother us? Do we have classmates that are mean to us and then go on and tell other people about it? We all we all do, but the question is, how do we deal Now, the way we should deal with it is to confront the person that we're bothered by and handle it one-on-one. That's the proper way to do it, but let's face it. How many actually do that? The way that we usually do it is we vent to the person who bothers us. We vent to someone else, and maybe as we vent, maybe we use maybe we use some innuendos, but one thing I can guarantee is that we do try to make that person look bad in the eyes of the person that we're talking to. But regardless of what we say, the truth is still the truth. Just because we embellish doesn't make that embellishment true, right? But what does change, what does change is the relationship that we have with the person that we're talking about and the relationship that we have with the person that we're talking to. Let's take a look at Matthew chapter 15 up on the board here. This is Jesus talking, and he says, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, and look at this next one, false witness, and slander. So Jesus is saying that when we bear false witness about someone, Along with all of these other things, along with evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, and slander, that is a symptom of something else. That in and of itself isn't the main problem. The main problem is something else, and that something else is the heart. The heart is the condition. Now, Jesus isn't talking about the pump in the center of our chest that's pumping blood all over the place. He's talking about the heart as the center of who we are. The heart is the makeup of who we are as as a person. And what comes out of the mouth is a reflection of what's in here. So when we say things that are evil, that means that the evil is coming from here. The mouth is just reflecting what's already inside of us. It's a reflection of our attitudes and our desires. Let's take a look at Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart is full of all things and desperately sick. That's our condition. That's where we find ourselves. So when we bear false witness against our neighbor, we don't do it in a courtroom. We do it by saying derogatory things about a person behind their back. When we first moved into We had a next-door neighbor at the time, and and one of the first things he said to me when we moved in was, let's 
let's agree on where a property line is because I don't want us to end up hating each other. And I thought to myself, wow, hating each other, that's, that's kind of brutal, just, you know, if I mow over, you know, a couple inches too far. But, you know, I figured, well, you know, that's, that's your thing. That's, that's all right. I mean, he was really into his yard, and you could see it. His, heart, his yard was beautiful. He spent a lot of time on it, and it was very important to him. So I respected that. He respected me. We had a great relationship together as neighbors. However, the other side of him, there was another neighbor could not stand him, could not stand him. These guys were fighting all the time to the point where the police had to be called a couple of times. You know, if they had a tree in one guy's yard and the branch went over to the other guy's yard and that guy trimmed the branch, this guy would get mad. It was brutal. So the other guy on the other side, he started bearing false witness in the neighborhood. He started telling other neighbors... uh, that this guy was crazy, this guy's insane. He wasn't, but that's how the embellishment works, right? And so um, rumors started to go around the neighborhood uh, about this guy, and I would have neighbors come up to me and say, wow, how can you, how can you stand living next to this guy? I hear, I hear the guy's psycho, I hear he's crazy. And I'd say, no, you heard wrong, he's fine. But the thing is, false testimony travels fast. There's a quote that uh, is often credited to Mark Twain, but it actually came from Charles Spurgeon, and it says this, a lie will go around the world while the truth is still putting its boots on. We might have a a neighbor that bothers us, um, and we might go to another neighbor then and complain about that person. Those complaints have some truth also might embellish the truth to make it more convincing. Well, isn't that ironic? Embellishing the truth to make it convincing? We have to lie to make it more believable? If you have to lie, what does that say about the truth? Labor isn't so bad. So why do we do it? Jesus says that it's a symptom of what hearts. Our hearts are evil, selfish. We do it because there's a benefit to us. There's that selfishness factor involved. So focusing on others, People like to see people who are more messed up than they are. Right? Because when we look at this whole situation, we think, wow, now that is crazy. I don't feel so bad anymore. People don't usually come up to us to say something nice about someone else. People don't usually come up to us to tell us a story about how somebody did something really nice for something else. That's not entertaining. We don't benefit from that. We bear false witness because our hearts are evil and we're selfish. But do we really gain anything from it? Do we really end up feeling better about ourselves? 
In Shakespeare's play Othello, there's a character, Iago, and he says this. He says, who steals my steals trash. Tis something, nothing, t'was mine, tis his, and has been slave to thousands. But he that filches not enriches him and makes me poor indeed. So in other words, he's saying, if someone steals my stuff, oh well. It's stuff. Easy come, easy go. It was mine, now it's his. But when someone steals my good name, when someone steals my reputation, when someone disparages my character, that's particularly cruel because I've lost everything now, and the guy who did it didn't even gain anything out of it. Bearing false witness isn't just about making conversation. It's trying to intentionally hurt someone. It's trying to ruin someone's reputation and make someone else look bad in the eyes of of other people. But here's the thing. What if they deserve it? What if the person you're talking about really is bad? What if the person you're talking about bears false witness against you and says slanderous things about you? Isn't it okay to fight back? to look for justice, to stand up for yourself? Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I think your page numbers are probably the same as mine. Mine is on page 948 if you're using the church Bible. Romans chapter 12. And we're going to start at Verse 9. Now, this is Paul, and he says, Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. So Paul here does the same thing that that Jesus did back in that uh, Matthew passage that we just read, 15. Paul goes straight to the heart, and he he declares that this is a heart issue. It's an issue of a lack of love in the heart. So he says, let love be genuine. Instead of a heart full of evil, have a heart full of love. And then he says, hate what is evil, hate and hold on tight to what is good. Grab on to what is good, hold fast to it, and hold on tight. Verse 10, love one another, do one another in showing honor. I love this part, out one another in showing honor. I think about Sounds like a contest to me. I'll do one another in showing honor. See who can show other people honor more. Bet you I can show people honor more than you can. See who can build one another up most. Wait a minute. My game. I'm going to have to. Because I need to outdo you in showing honor. I love that verse. Let's look at uh, verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Seen a sloth? (laughs) They walk slowly and they sleep a lot. Don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Be excited. Be active. Be eager to serve the Lord. Be eager to speak well of people. Verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant 
in prayer. So rejoice in hope. That means celebrate the hope that you have. Celebrate the salvation that you've received. And because you're able to celebrate the salvation you've received, you can persevere in tribulation. So when mean people are being mean to you, because you can rejoice in hope, now you can endure when people are being mean to you. And then he says, be constant in prayer. So while all of this is going on, keep your line of communication open with God. Because check it out. It's impossible to tear someone down and talk to God at the same time. You can't tear someone down and talk to God at the same time. So, talk to God. Verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So, have a mindset of serving. When we see a need, need, meet that need. Money, time, talent, doesn't matter. If If someone is in need and you can help with your money, time, or talent, then do it. And then, show hospitality. So that means actually invite people into your home so that you can help your money, time, or your talent. But going back to my question, what if they deserve it? What if they deserve it? What if these people are mean? What if they're stabbing you in the back and making up false stories about you? Well, let's look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So when people are mean to you, be nice to them. And when these mean people have something good happen to them, rejoice with them. Be happy for them. And when these mean people have bad things happen to them, tell them you're sorry. Sympathize with them. Mourn with them. Weep with them. So far, none of this makes sense to me. You? This is crazy stuff. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So do everything you can do to avoid conflict uh, with other people. Don't consider yourself too good or too smart or too athletic or whatever to associate with these people, but associate with people, whether you like them or not, whether they're mean to you or not. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable, in the sight of all, in the sight of all. So instead of thinking about how to get back to someone, think about how you can honor that person. What? And not only between the two of you, but for everyone to see. In the sight of all, when someone hurts you, love them. When someone tears you down, build them up that everyone can see it. If so far as it depends on you, live with all. So Paul is saying it may not be possible because you don't always have any control over what somebody else says or thinks or does, but you have control over what you say, think, and do. So as far as you have any control over it, try to live peaceably with everyone, even to those who are you, even those who slander you and make false accusations against you. So our next question is, well, that's not fair. Shouldn't they have to pay for what they've done? Shouldn't they have to pay for what they've done? Verse 19, beloved. Now, I like the way that Paul starts with the word beloved because before he even goes into his next point, he reminds us, you are loved. Remember, 
before I make my next point, remember that you are loved. Okay? And then he says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So vengeance isn't for us to worry about. Justice, retribution, got it covered. He can handle it, leave it in his hands. And then he goes on in verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. What in the world does that mean? You will heap burning coals on his head. I always used to think when I read this passage, I always used to think that that meant vengeance. But of course, that would have been a contradiction, right? Because Paul's just been talking about how we should be nice to people who are mean to us, how we should love people, and then he talks about dumping burning coals on his head. Where'd that come from? Well, we can find out in uh, Isaiah chapter 6. You don't need to turn there. We're going to throw it up on the screen in a minute. But um, in Isaiah chapter 6, you've heard me uh, preach on this passage before because it's one of my favorite passages. But in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah hasn't really started his ministry yet. And so God gives Isaiah a vision. And in this vision, Isaiah sees God in all of his glory and all of his majesty seated on the throne and the train of his robe fills the temple and he's got angels all around him that are serving him. And God is so awesome that the angels can't even look at God. They have to cover their eyes. They have to cover their bodies just to even be able to serve God. And when God speaks, there's an earthquake and there's smoke that fills the temple. So Isaiah comes in and he sees this vision. And you know what he says? He falls on his face and he says, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah, when he saw that vision of God, the first thing that popped into his head was, man, I've slandered people. I've made false accusations against people. The stuff that has come out of my mouth, Isaiah realizes that the stuff that has come out of his mouth came from the heart. And Isaiah knows, I am evil. I can't stand before this amazing, glorious God. I'm evil. And he falls on the face and he says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. But check this out. What does God do? Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand, what? A burning coal. That he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. So this image that Paul uses about the coals being dumped on his head, you know, when you are kind to people, when you are nice to people who are mean to you, you're dumping burning coals on his head. This is what Paul is talking about. Paul's saying that when we respond in love, we help to cleanse that person. Just like Isaiah was cleansed by God when Isaiah knew that he was doomed. He knew that he knew that he didn't have the right to stand before God, God said, here, I'm touching your lips with this burning coal, and I, by doing so, I'm taking away your sin. I'm making you clean so that you can go out and work for me. So, okay, I've made you clean. 
what? Who wants to go? Who wants to go and work for? Isaiah says, "Here am I." No more on his face. Now he's up, holding up. Ooh, ooh, ooh! Let me go. Here am I. Send me. So Paul is saying that the. Speaking by being kind to them, he's saying it's kind of viruses and the germs and all can harm you. All in the heart of the person that's been mean to you, bitterness can be burned off by showing them love, by showing them mercy, by showing them kindness. You can burn off the. And if the other person's heart isn't softened by your kindness, don't worry about it because ultimately God is the one in charge. God is the one who is going to make all right in eternity. Justice will become reality. And that last verse in, in Romans 12, verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So since God's vengeance covered, don't overcoming, uh, don't worry just worry about evil with good. But Mike, it still doesn't make sense. You're right. It doesn't make sense. Sense when Jesus did it. When people bore false witness against Jesus, they had to witness against them to get him to the courtroom, right? When people bore false witness against him, him when they beat him, when they crucified him. Do you remember what Luke 23, 34 said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here you have the only man in all of history who truly was completely in that he wasn't worried about his rights. He wasn't worried about what was fair. He was worried about the people who were mistreating him. In the midst of being tortured, his heart went out to his torturers, being uh, accused and tried. His heart went out to his accusers. In the midst of his crucifixion, his heart went out to us, the very people that he was redeeming. Why? Because Jesus understood justice in a way that we don't understand justice. Let's look at Proverbs 29:26. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. Jesus knew that happened on this side of eternity. Jesus knew that the authorities aren't capable of administering justice. But Jesus know that justice will happen in eternity and that every single one of us are guilty. But justice will be satisfied. It's great when justice happens to someone who we think deserves it, but it's pretty scary when it's our turn. We forget that we're guilty, don't we? We think somebody else is guilty. We forget that we're guilty. There are going to be a lot of surprised people in eternity. 
But he chose to bear the punishment for our sins so that justice would be satisfied without us having to be the ones to satisfy it. Jesus sacrificed himself specifically to spare us from the justice that we deserve. Let's look at Proverbs 28.5. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it. Those who seek the Lord understand it. So we will forever in this life wish for justice for the people who have mistreated us. And we will forever be disappointed in this life. Because we live in a fallen world that doesn't understand justice. And if we live in a fallen world that doesn't understand justice, how can we expect it to administer justice? If we, as Christians, find it so hard to love people and honor people, be hospitable to people, to show mercy, if we as Christians find it hard to do these things, then how can we expect a fallen world to administer something that only God can administer? Justice. He doesn't have to bear false witness against us. You know why? Because every accusation that he could ever make against us would be true. Like I mentioned at the beginning, we look at the Ten Commandments, and at face value, we think, well, this one doesn't really apply to me, this one doesn't apply to me. But we've learned as we've gone through this series that every single one of us applies to us. We've failed at every single one. So there is no accusation that God could make that wouldn't be true of us. But those who seek the Lord understand it completely. Those who seek the Lord understand that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. Have earned wrath, but we've received mercy. That Jesus positioned himself between us and the wrath that we deserve, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Let's turn to Luke chapter 7. Chapter 7. Now, in Luke chapter 7, there's a story about a Pharisee who invited Jesus to dinner. So Jesus goes over to the house uh, for dinner, and while they're there, a woman shows up. So let's take a look, starting at verse 37. It says this. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really known who and what sort of woman this is. That's t- and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them would love him more? 
Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased. You did not anoint me with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he turned to her, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. So if we want to be forgiven much, then we have to be willing to forgive much. If we think about how much we've been forgiven, then we need to love much. Now that doesn't just mean not spreading rumors and not spreading lies, but it actually means loving the people who do it to us. It means showering them with kindness. It means dumping those figurative hot coals on their head to burn off all of the bitterness that's in their hearts. In order for us to be able to overcome kindness or overcome evil with good, our love has to be genuine. And in order for our love to be genuine, we have to remember that we are guilty. In order for our love to be genuine, we have to understand that we earned wrath, but we received mercy. The heart may be evil, but we've been redeemed. And it's good to know, isn't it, that Jesus is in charge of wrath, that he's in charge of administering justice? Because you know what that does? That frees us up. Because now, instead of having to harbor that bitterness, instead of having to to resent that person for what they've done to us, we can be free from that because he's going to handle it. He's going to handle it. And it's going to get handled. It's going to get handled. We don't have to worry about that. But now what that does is that frees us up so that we can do what he asks us to do and love that person. Maybe by loving that person, maybe that person someday will be able to say, Here I am, Lord, send me. If there's anything that I've gained by working on this this topic, it's that you will never regret acting in love. You will never regret acting in love. Natural tendency, but you will never regret it. Try it. I dare you. I double dog dare you. Next time you're tempted to maybe disparage a person, next time you have someone who's frustrating you and you want to tell somebody else about it so that they can be upset at that person as well, try honoring the person instead. See if you can turn it around and honor the person. See what you feel like afterwards. See if you don't feel better afterwards. Next time you're, you're tempted to engage in a conversation where somebody is spreading rumors and gossiping about someone else, 
Try to interject something positive about that person. See if you don't feel better afterwards. You will never regret it. Let's pray.